we come to the preaching of God's Word, which we have already been reminded is not merely teaching, but it is worship. And so we will consider fundamental truths, but we will also hear those things that are to strike to the error and the sin in our hearts and to show the light of the truth on them and to bring illumination and repentance. And so our message, our first message on union with Christ comes this morning from Colossians chapter 1, and I encourage you to open your copy of the Word, if you have that with you now, to Colossians 1. The message will be focused on verse 27, but we're going to take a moment to to gather the greater context and begin reading at verse 1 from Colossians 1. Hear now the Word of God. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God and Timothy our brother, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are in Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We give thanks to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you, since we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of your love for all the saints because of the hope which is laid up for you in heaven of which you heard before in the word of truth of the gospel, which has come to you as it is also in all the world and is bringing forth fruit as it is also among you since the day you heard it and knew the grace of God in truth. As you also learn from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf, who also declared to us your love in the Spirit. For this reason, we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all wisdom and spiritual understanding, that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all might according to his glorious power for all patience and long-suffering with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in the light. He has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of His love, in whom we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things consist. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. For it pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell, and by him to reconcile all things to himself by him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. And you, who were once alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he has reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight, if indeed you continue in the faith, grounded and steadfast, and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you heard, 
which was preached to every creature under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for you, and fill up in my flesh what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ for the sake of his body, which is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God which was given to me for you to fulfill the word of God, the mystery of which has been hidden from ages and from generations, but now has been revealed to his saints. To them, God willed to make known what are the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Our gracious, loving, all-wise Heavenly Father, as we are gathered as one people in your holy presence, we come now to the preaching of your word. We are thankful for your word, for it is perfect and it is truth. As we consider our union with Christ, we confess that this profound truth revealed in your word is both glorious and mysterious. Consider, O Lord, the weakness of our minds and the stubbornness of our hearts, and by your Holy Spirit, open us up to hear more of this glorious mystery and draw us close to you this morning. Strengthen our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. As has been rightly observed, some men have greater faith than others, yet no man has a greater Christ than another. Help us, we pray. Help us to know and to live in the light of this precious doctrine. Keep us steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, looking unto Christ, trusting in His provision and believing the gospel in every aspect of our lives. In this we pray with confidence in the risen Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. You may be seated. This morning, over the course of what will likely be less than an hour, I want us to consider this doctrine of union, the union, our union with Christ, and know that it is a doctrine that strikes at the heart of who we are as Christians, and yet it has been noted by some that it is one of the most neglected doctrines in the teaching and the preaching of the church, and perhaps that is because it is a bit like the air we breathe. We read of it throughout the New Testament. It seems to be almost everywhere, and so we presume upon it without pondering the profound import of the truths that it reveals. So maybe it would be helpful to begin this message by asking a question that Spurgeon asked his congregation. Are you now of God in Christ Jesus, so as to be depending for everything upon Him, dwelling in Him and He in you, feeling His life within you, and that your life is hid with Him in God. Beloved hearer, there is no joy in the world like union with Christ. The more we can feel it, the happier we are. Whatever our circumstances may be, But if you are without Christ, you are without hope. Joy comes not 
where Jesus comes not. No Savior, then no peace in life or death. Oh, remember, beloved hearer, that you will soon die, end quote. Well, I do very much appreciate the evangelistic call contained in these words, but what catches my attention is the phrase, there is no joy in this world like union with Christ. I love, I love the word joy. I love the idea. I love the awareness and the experience of joy. I desire joy for myself, but even more than that, I desire joy for us as a people and a congregation to be characterized by joy in the Lord. As we consider our union with Christ, I would like us to do so in five parts, or perhaps we could call this a five-point sermon. First, I will look at the problem, or at least consider one pervasive threat to the Christian who fails to grasp this doctrine, and as I do so, I will be focusing on our identity. Second, we will identify the solution, which is... Jesus. It's okay. You can, you can give Sunday school answers here. Third, we will consider some of the wrong views of union with Christ that are out there. Fourth, I want us to see the victory and the intimacy that we find in our union with Christ. And fifth, and finally, I will conclude and identify seven practical implications of union with Christ. So the problem, and I'm focusing on identity, remember, we live in an age characterized by what we might call an identity crisis, to use a contemporary phrase. Who am I? Who are you? Who are we? So how would you answer those questions if somebody comes up to you and asks, who are you? You might give them your name, but you know it's a deep conversation, and so it strikes deeper. What gets to the core of who you are as an individual, is the point of that question. What makes you, you? Perhaps a succinct lay definition of identity crisis would be when a person is questioning their sense of self or place in the world. There are so many manifestations of this struggle, this struggle with identity that we can point to in our day. The sexual revolution homosexuality, transgenderism, the whole array of LGBTQ plus issues, no-fault divorce, birth control, abortion, the roles of men and women in the church, in the home, and in the workplace, and every one of these things, and so many more, are rooted in rebellion against authority, whether it be the authority of our bodies and the ontological testimony that they provide about how we were created, or the authority in our lives, whether they be the whole council of Scripture, or husbands, or pastors, or magistrates, or law structures, or cultural standards, or vows that we have made, or contracts that we have signed, you name it, we are a rebellious people living in a rebellious time given to autonomy or self-law. Our forefathers drank deeply from the individualistic springs of the Enlightenment, and we are their offspring. 
To be sure, this is nothing new under the sun. In Adam, we inherit that sin nature that itself began as an autonomous rebellion. And as we look across our land and the history of the West in particular over the past few hundred years, we see a rampant and invasive form of this rebellious revolutionary weed that has found fertile ground in our prosperous, individual-focused culture. This country was founded upon a spirit of rugged individualism. And it turns out that a culture and a people that are battling for survival or busy taking dominion over an untamed wilderness or mining the resources needed to build a great civilization has absolutely no time, no place for a crisis where the meditations of their dark hearts might lead someone to declare, I am a woman trapped in a man's body. And even if that were to be heard, there most certainly wouldn't be a chorus of agreement and celebration by everyone around him. It would not be affirmed by his family, his friends, or his broader social context. In his excellent book, Carl Truman refers to this as the rise and triumph of the modern self, subtitled, Cultural Amnesia, Expressive Individualism, and the Road to Sexual Revolution. This focus in our current culture on the self, on autonomy and expressive individualism, has come at the expense of truth and in defiance of our Creator God. As we give thanks to God for the recent Supreme Court ruling overturning Roe v. Wade, we will continue to read news articles and hear pundits decrying the attack on bodily and reproductive autonomy. As we stand for marriage, as the union of one man and one woman, we will be called idiots and dinosaurs by those who justify their support for perversion on the basis of personal autonomy. When we speak against drag queen story hour at the local public library or decry the error of a Burgerfell v. Hodges, we will be labeled as haters and possibly even domestic terrorists, and this will be because we have scorned the God of expressive individualism. Yes, we do find ourselves in an age of identity crisis, and it is because we, as a culture and a society, have looked inward to ourselves for truth and meaning and identity and declared ourselves to be God. We do this when we find truth within ourselves. We decide truth within ourselves. And what a puny God that turns out to be. It is idolatry, plain and simple. Speaking of the Obergefell decision, Justice Anthony Kennedy opened his majority report in terms that spoke more, about, more than about homosexual rights with a statement indicative of the spirit and ethos of our modern age, writing, The Constitution promises liberty to all within its reach, a liberty that includes certain specific rights that allow persons within a lawful realm to define and express their identity. 
In essence, Kennedy was echoing himself from another opinion years earlier. At the heart of liberty is the right to define one's own concept of existence. Do you hear the focus on identity and presumption of the ultimate rightness of autonomy? With these words, Justice Kennedy had codified in law the thought of today's average American, which is, there is nothing more important than answering that question, who am I, in whatever way we want. We are taught to believe that all things are meant to serve our attempt to discover and live out our identity. The ultimate object of life is to find satisfaction and fulfillment in our self-expression. Dear church, this is a lie. Don't embrace it, but don't ignore it. Sensitize yourself to this language and way of thinking to the point that you reject it with every fiber in your being. When you hear the thoughts in your mind that are autonomous and self-directed, you need to check your spirit and put it off. And this is not a phenomenon limited to the USA. In recent years, societies around the globe have become increasingly individualistic. We live in the age of selfies and you-do-you mentality, a time when identity was recently voted the word of the year. A person's identity or their particular mode of self-expression is sacred in our current context. There is nothing more important, our society says, than allowing people to identify themselves in whatever way they see fit. And don't think it is limited to this LGBTQ madness. It is so pervasive, it affects every single person gathered here this morning. The moment someone challenges the wisdom of something we are doing, or suggests that we should deny ourselves something, or not embrace a particular form of self-expression, there is a recoil in our spirit. But what a stark contrast this is to the first part of the answer to the first question we find in the 1563 Heidelberg Catechism. What is your only comfort in life and in death? Question one. Answer. That I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. We are not our own. We were bought with a price. Our bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit. For we do not live to ourselves, and we do not die to ourselves. If we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. Christ gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify for himself a people of his own who are zealous for good deeds. This first question and answer from the Heidelberg Catechism couldn't be further from the prevailing mindset of today. What was seen as freeing, freeing back then, is viewed as being in exact opposition to the heart of liberty today. If the catechism were to be rewritten now, it might look something like this. What is your only comfort in life and in death? That is, what keeps you motivated, inspired, and going every day? Answer, 
that I am my own and can be whatever I want and whatever I want to be, and no one can stop me. You can almost see the motivational poster. So what is the solution? If this individualistic, self-centered, puny idol is the problem, then what is the solution? According to the Heidelberg Catechism, our hope, security, fulfillment, and satisfaction in this life can never come from us. They come from disowning ourselves and finding our all and all in Jesus Christ. It is by being a person who is, whose only help is in God alone. And this is a radical message to hear today. But it is a freeing message. And it is a life-giving message. For the Christian, our identity is not something we earn, but something we are given. It is not something we find inside ourselves. It is something that is intrinsically outside of ourselves in the person of Jesus Christ. He becomes our identity. The Bible is exceedingly clear on this point. Scripture sums up this profoundly important concept in just two little words. In Him. In other words, everything that we have and everything that we are is found in the person of Jesus Christ. The technical term for this concept is union with Christ. It is a doctrine that we all very likely presume upon. It's it's like the floor that we are sitting or standing on even now. It's foundational. We presume upon it. We never come across the phrase union with Christ in Scripture, so it's another one of those cases. But we do encounter phrases like in Him, in Christ, and in the Lord, and among others. You may have noticed that these are favorite phrases of the Apostle Paul in particular. Once you start looking for it, you will be amazed just how often the phrase in Him, or one of its variations, appears in the New Testament. You won't be able to miss it. According to some counts, there are no fewer than 160 mentions of believers being in Christ found in Scripture. And these numbers should speak for themselves. This is such an important doctrine that John Murray, longtime professor at Westminster Theological Seminary, said, Nothing, nothing is more central or basic than union and communion with Christ. Union with Christ is really the central truth of the whole doctrine of salvation, not only in its application, but also in its once-for-all accomplishment in the finished works of Christ, end quote. And Murray was not alone in his estimation of this doctrine. John Owen referred to union with Christ as the measure of all spiritual enjoyments and expectations. Thomas Goodwin wrote, Being in Christ and united to Him is the fundamental constitution of a Christian. Calvin said the doctrine deserves the highest degree of importance. What these men understood was the biblical evidence, that the biblical evidence was relentless in impressing on us the centrality of this truth. Therefore, we ought to take heed. This is something we need to grasp if we are to fully understand the riches and reach of our salvation in Christ. Perhaps we can put it this way. Union with Christ teaches us that salvation is not something we get from Jesus but it reveals that salvation is Jesus. It may be overly simplistic, 
But for some believers, this is a groundbreaking concept. Many of us are raised believing that that Jesus is simply the way to salvation. But no, He is salvation. He is the way, but He is also the life. He is both the giver and the gift. He is not a means to an end. He is the end. We are not to come to Christ looking for Him to give us something like salvation or sanctification or a better life, but instead we are to come to Christ looking for Him. And when we receive Him, we receive everything we need. A great issue with many Christians is that we flee to Christ seeking something from Him rather than simply seeking Him. It is no small consolation to know that our Lord is so gracious that even when we come with these other motives, He welcomes us anyway. And as we do, His Holy Spirit enables us slowly but surely to discover over time that our deepest thirst was not ultimately for His gifts, but for Him. He is the living water we desperately need. So what this beautiful doctrine unashamedly teaches us is that Christ is truly all. And when we are in Him, we have all things as well. Apart from Jesus, we are nothing and we have nothing. But in Christ, we are filled with the very fullness of God. God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. This doctrine ought to magnify and increase our love for Christ and to move us to say with the Apostle Paul that we have no greater desire than to know Christ and to be found in Him. But, as you might expect with any teaching, with any doctrine, there are some wrong views. So I want to be clear that union with Christ does not mean we become Christ. It is not a form of deification where we slowly turn into gods or become one with the divine essence. That would be some heinous form of mysticism and not the Christian religion. Nor are we literally or physically united to Him as though we become conjoined twins attached at the hip. The biblical conception of union is manifold, but it ultimately comes down to this. It is a spiritual union, a work wrought through the power of the Holy Spirit. Remember, Jesus is now ascended and sitting at the right hand of the Father in heaven. And we're not in heaven per se. So how could it be that we are united to Him? Therefore, it must be through some mysterious working of the Spirit. By faith, the Holy Spirit brings us into a union with Jesus that is personal. It is real. It is vital. It is life-giving. And it is unbreakable. It is a union that can span even the distance between heaven and earth. Owen explains how the whole of this union hangs on the work of the Spirit of Christ when he says, two men cannot become one because they have two souls. No more could we be one with Christ were it not the same Spirit in Him and in us. It is the Holy Spirit who enables to be one with Christ, to be in Christ. It should also be noted that our union with Christ does not erase our individuality. 
The apostles John and Paul understood the importance of union with Christ, and both were united to Christ, and yet they had different callings, different personalities and styles of writing. Even when teaching about this doctrine, John used the poetic and very helpful imagery of abiding in Christ, like a branch that grows and produces fruit from a vine, as we read earlier from John 15. Whereas Paul, by and large, stuck with the in him language. So union with Christ does not make us boringly homogenous and all the same. What union with Christ does is take us individually with our own interests, hobbies, senses of humor, quirks, and all, and brings us into a saving relationship with our Lord, Jesus Christ, and conforms us more and more into His image. Furthermore, the doctrine of union with Christ does not render those things we often identify ourselves by, our family or our career, whether we're male or female, as unimportant or meaningless. Far from it. Our identity in Christ is a fundamental identity that claims every other identity that we could possibly have. Put another way, our identity in Christ is the lens through which every other identity becomes accountable and clear and in accordance with His truth. Someone once noted that no part of human identity goes untouched by union with Christ. And I don't want to get into a language war here. And I absolutely affirm that language is supremely important, but the issue is not so much as having a gender identity, per se, as it is having a gender identity that the Lord recognizes as virtuous and in accordance with His created order. The problem is not having a career. The problem is making your career an idol and your only purpose for living. Parenthood is a wonderful blessing and a calling, but mom and dad is never meant to be who we are in the ultimate sense. To have an identity that is rooted in Christ will claim, cleanse, and control all other aspects of who we are. An identity in Christ will give renewed meaning, invigorating purpose, and God-glorifying direction to everything else we do in life. But I also want to speak for a moment about the victory and intimacy we find in our union with Christ. We need to know that our identity in Christ is the source of our ultimate assurance of salvation. And it is so intimate that we can never separate ourselves from it. As Christ lived a life of perfect obedience to the will of the Father, He was continually exhausting and breaking the dominion of sin so that when he rose from the grave, it is clear that the dominion of sin had been broken. As we read the Pauline epistles, we see that Paul understood that he was not under the dominion of sin. He was united to Christ. Yet we also see there is a conundrum, do we not? In distinction from the Lord Jesus Sin was still present in Paul as it is in you and me. Sin remains in the unresurrected world all around us. But because we are united to Christ, sin no longer has dominion over us. And that is why we're able to say with Paul, as he says in Romans 6, 12-14, having considered himself as someone who has died to the dominion of sin in Jesus Christ and been raised in newness of life, 
He then is in the position of responding to sin in the power of the Spirit. He can now have the great victory, as it were, and know I am united to Christ and no longer in Adam and under the dominion of sin. I am in a position of freedom to fight back, to struggle by the power of the Holy Spirit who will enable me to overcome sin. And thus we see the the battle pattern of Romans 7 leading us into Romans 8. And we also see in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 that we are so completely united to Christ and not as some sort of disembodied spirit somewhere within us that is united to Christ, but we are united to Christ, body and soul. Paul writes, foods for the stomach and stomachs for the food, but God will destroy both it and them. Now the body is not for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God raised up the Lord and will also raise us up by His power. And then Paul, by the Spirit, brings us this rebuke. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take members of Christ and make them members of a harlot? Certainly not. Or do you not know that he is, who is joined to a harlot is one body with her? For the two, he says, shall become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. We are so intimately united to Jesus through the Holy Spirit that he is saying, when you go into the brothel, you are not able to say, Jesus, you stay out here. He is saying that, don't you understand that you are so united to the Lord Jesus? What, in effect, you are saying is, Jesus, come on in here with me to the prostitute. That's how intimate and that's how real Paul sees and teaches by the Spirit our union with Christ is. And in Galatians 2, and the whole of Ephesians is full of this. You've been chosen in Christ from before the foundation of the world. And because you are in Christ, the benefactor, all the benefits are poured out upon you in Him. We find this in Philippians 3 and in Colossians. You can't escape the way in which Paul suggests there is not a single problem in any of us, in any congregation of his church, that union with Christ cannot solve. And we also see this is how Paul deals with legalism and antinomianism. The way in you and I would deal with it is to say, antinomian, here, take just a, a little dose of legalism. Or to the legalists, we say, you need just a little dose of antinomianism. That's the way we might try to handle that. But the way Paul puts things right is teaching us how the gospel works for those who are united to Jesus Christ. So that what the law could never do because it is weak through the flesh, God does by sending His Son in the likeness of sinful flesh for our sin to get condemned sin in the flesh. Christ dies for us in order that the righteous commands of the law might be fulfilled in us for all who by the Spirit are united to Jesus Christ and walk by the Spirit. This is where we find true victory. This is where we find true liberty. In his opening volley to the Ephesian church, Paul writes, God writes, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places. 
we are united to Christ in the election of grace and the eternal counsels of God. We are united to Christ at the cross when Jesus died for sinners as our representative and substitute. We are united to Christ in our experience when we are born again from above by the Holy Spirit. We are justified in Christ when we receive the spirit of adoption in Him, sanctified in Him, glorified in Him. Union with Christ is found in every facet of the believer's new life, and Christ's identity becomes our precious possession and new identity. We are new creations in Him. Our union with Christ is the environment for every spiritual blessing. It cannot be located at one point, but must be woven through the whole fabric of Christian teaching and understanding about the way God saves and how we live our lives to the glory of God in Christ. Union with Christ is that vast and that comprehensive. So in conclusion, who are you? What gets to the core of who you are as an individual? What makes you, you? What is the one thing that is true of you in every circumstance of life? You need to know that everything, absolutely everything, that you need for a lasting, fulfilling identity is found in Christ and only in Christ. Are you struggling with an identity crisis of any sort? Look to Christ. Fall on your face before Him. Confess your sin. Repent and believe the gospel. As we confess that we are weak and needy, we need to labor in the heart and truth of this foundational doctrine until our uncompromising answer to the question, Who am I? is an unashamed, nothing doubting, completely trusting and utterly confident, I am a Christian. I am in Christ. And as you continue to read the Scriptures, which I trust you do, look for that short phrase, those two words, in Him, and know that they make a big difference, an eternal difference. For in Him we are chosen and loved, redeemed and forgiven, cleansed and made new. In Him we are kept secure and made truly alive. This is the Christian's true identity. It is an identity that the world cannot offer and with which the world cannot compete. Nothing but an identity founded in Christ is sustainable through all the changes of life and nothing else will satisfy. Are you found in Him? Are you truly in Christ? Are you walking daily with Christ and in Him and trusting in Him and looking to Him for all that ails you in your life? Is He the source of all your praises as you dwell in Him? If so, then let me leave all of us with seven practical but brief implications of our union with Christ. First, our union with Christ lays the foundation for communion with God. After promising to send the Holy Spirit so that Christ would share His life with His disciples and be in them, John 14, Jesus says, He who has my commandments and keeps them, it is He who loves me. 
And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. He also promised my Father will love him and will come to him and make our home with him. As we truly comprehend and embrace this truth, we will crave to know this love, to know this comfort, to know this fellowship more and more, and it becomes a potent motive for our obedience to his word. Secondly, our union with Christ initiates and perpetuates our spiritual transformation. By union with Christ in his death and resurrection, we have undergone a tremendous change in our basic orientation in life. We no longer live for ourselves, but for the one who died and rose again for us. Our flesh has been crucified with its evil desires, and we now engage in a spirit-led war against remaining sin. Are you battling remaining sin? Like the branches of the vine, Christians bear fruit that is pleasing to God by abiding in Christ, and we should therefore seek fruitfulness in that union. We do this by consciously depending upon Christ as the one apart from whom we can do nothing, by using the means of grace in word and prayer, by humbly receiving the Father's purifying discipline in our lives, and by keeping Christ's commands, especially the command to love one another. And third, our union with Christ causes participation in Christ's sufferings. Paul wrote that his goal was to be found in Christ, that he would know him in the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being made conformable unto his death. Through our union with Christ, both the sufferings and the consolations of Christ overflow into our lives. And we are marked by both his death and resurrection power. As Christ went to the cross, so we too must take up our crosses and follow him. As scripture reveals, we must suffer with him if we would be glorified with him. Fourth, our union with Christ confers a new and noble identity. Consider this observation. If believers are united to Christ, then we must conclude that they are the most honorable and most excellent persons upon the face of the earth. Joined to the King of glory, poor sinners become members of the royal family. In union with the Son, we are sons and daughters of God. And this truth reminds us that when we are tempted to dwell on our failure, on our sin, and maybe even shame and disgrace, we remember that this is neither the ultimate nor the whole truth. No, we are united to Christ and joint heirs of His riches. It also reminds us that we may have confidence in our prayers. If we are united to Christ, then all that is His is mine. We can therefore approach God with humble confidence that our prayers are heard and answered perfectly. And it also reminds us that we have His strength in the midst of temptation. Our union with Christ reminds us of the intimacy of that union, that nothing, nothing, nothing is hid from Him and of the great offense it would be to Him if we were to give ourselves to that sin. (coughs) And fifth, our union with Christ connects us to each other as members of one body, 
Christians are not isolated individuals, but our lives are organically intertwined with other believers. This should spur us on to depend upon each other for our needs, to love one another, to value the weakest believers in the church, and to serve with energy and zeal so that the whole body, the whole body might grow and be strengthened. Christ taught us that whatever we do for the least of His brothers, we do for Him. This should also motivate us to walk humbly and patiently with one another, lest we disrupt the unity that Christ has given to us in His Spirit and so wound His dear body. Sixth, our union with Christ empowers us with bold fidelity in ministry. As we see our union with Christ, we see that He is the very way of the truth and the life, and we are therefore compelled to be found faithful to His Word in all of our ministries. As we grow in the confidence of our, the power of our union with Christ, we are emboldened to proclaim Christ in all we do, and can therefore say in faith with Paul, Now thanks be unto God, which always causes us to triumph in Christ, and maketh manifest the savor of His knowledge by us in every place. Be bold in your testimony for Christ. Don't be timid. This is a world that is growing dark around us, and there's a Christian around every corner who's waiting to be encouraged by another brother or sister to praise God in their midst, who will then be emboldened, and you can see the cascade of the effect. And seventh, our union with Christ grants us hope in trials and temptations. As we grow in the confidence of the power of our union with Christ, then we exult with the Apostle Paul, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, <clears throat> or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. While we wait upon the Lord and persevere, we know that the Lord of all is as tender to us as a man is to his own body. He will give us what we need. He will use all our sufferings, even as a person might use a harsh medicine for the health of his sick body. He will care for us and bring us to glory. As the head is in heaven, so surely will the body follow. So what does this all mean? It means that everything that is Christ is rightfully ours. And everything that is ours is rightfully Christ. We receive His sinless righteousness, inheritance, glory, and much more. He receives our sin, wretchedness, filth, weakness, poverty, judgment, and curse. It is by no means a fair and equal trade. Yet this, this is the infinite love that God has toward His chosen people in Christ Jesus. For He made Himself, for He made Him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. It is also just as important to recognize that while we are in Christ, He is in us as well. Or as we sometimes sing, I am His and He is mine. 
He is in us by His incarnation. Through the incarnation, Jesus truly knows us, knows our frame and frailty. He knows our weaknesses and our temptations. One theologian wrote that we can become one with Him because He first became one with us. By taking human nature into personal union, the Son of God has joined Himself to humanity. He now has a human body and soul which He will never jettison. <clears throat> but even more astounding than that is the reality that Christ is literally in us through the powerful working of the Holy Spirit. By this we know that we abide in Him and He in us because He has given us of His Spirit. In our message text, Colossians 1.27, Paul bursts forth into praise and doxology when he declares, Christ in you, the hope of glory. Our eternal peace, hope, and joy rest in the fact that not only are we found in Christ, but He has graciously condescended to be found in us, poor, miserable sinners. But apart from this union and communion with Christ, we can have no claim to the hope of heaven, the hope of glory. We can have no access to the glories of Christ Apart from being in Him, we cannot share in His saving benefits. But the very instant we put our faith in Jesus Christ, the Spirit draws us into Christ, and Christ into us, and we have every spiritual blessing. Do you see how much richer and fuller your life is once you have Christ and are united to Him? Thanks be to God for this wonderful, powerful mysterious union that we now have in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Let us pray. <clears throat> our Heavenly Father, we thank You that You have not only united us by Your Spirit to our Lord Jesus Christ, but in Your Word You teach us as we peer into these things how marvelous not only is our identity as Christians, but how amazing is this pattern you have set before us. Lord, we are often sore and crushed and perplexed, but we thank you that out of the darkness you bring life. Out of the death you bring resurrection. And we know that nothing that refuses to die can ever be raised again from the dead. And we pray that in this spirit we may yield more and more to our crucified Savior and more and more enter into our share in the triumph of His resurrection, so that anything that is lacking in us of our fellowship in the sufferings of Christ may be filled up in order that anything that is lacking in your declaration of our fruitfulness may come to pass in each of our ministries. And this we pray with great hope and confidence, and even with great thankfulness in Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen.